um, a week has passed. I trust it was uh, a, f a fruitful week for you. Um, it was touching to meet with you in groups individually and see your dedication in here. There is often an element of, I'm not quite sure what this all is about in, in uh, retreats. So some things are very clear and specific and some things you probably need a little time to find, to let it find its place. There is a peace that hasn't quite settled and that can only become more clear in retrospective. So I would like to request that you be patient with that part uh, rather than trying to um, pigeonhole it into categories it doesn't quite fit in or just um, write it off as not important. Um, it may be useful to just be caringly and patiently hold that piece where you don't know where it belongs. Yeah? So there is a, uh, something along this way makes us more tolerant for for how we connect with bits that don't necessarily dovetail with everything else that we know. Yeah. Um, as you're probably aware, this is a larger project, uh, although we have made promises in, align in alignment with the Satipatthana Sutta's promise at the end that, that uh, seven days are actually enough. <laughs> in, uh, I don't want to you have to be clear about yourself, but uh, my own project seems to extend a little bit <laughs> beyond that. <clears throat> it's, been, <clears throat> it's been running for 35 years or so. If you hold this practice of mind cultivation in a bigger light, then I think it's useful to zoom out for a moment and without Pali terms, look at four different um, dimensions of practice. Uh, four different dimensions I feel are indispensable. Let me just see whether in all brevity I can name these dimensions. I think the first dimension has to do with, uh, for me, I call it settling the baby. Yeah. It's basically about stilling, about centering, about uh, pacifying, about stabilizing, about cultivating that which holds the center. Yeah. It's the opposite of scattered, it's the opposite of complexity, it's the opposite of fragmentation, it's the opposite of disembodiment, it's everything that brings me home, so to say, yeah? in my own kind of uh, simple language, it is kind of everything that brings me home. Um, sometimes this has a sense of charging batteries, sometimes this has a sense of intervention, of actually uh, cl clipping the mind's expansiveness and bringing home breath, bringing home body, bringing home posture, bringing home attentional focus, bringing home the tools of the trade. Now, for that, uh, necessary is clarity, some clarity of how I can do this. This is a set of skills that have to do with how I can ground myself, how I can still myself, how can I uh, tranquilize myself, how I can self-modulate 
the speed and the intensity of my emotional, my bodily, my mental experience. These, I think, are really practice uh, skills. Um, they're not just rated importantly in Buddhist psychology. They're also um, they're also rated high in a, in a therapeutic setting or in a psychological setting. the The skill in self calming is crucial. You know, we will all experience situations in our life and stuff that that shakes us out of our trees. Yeah? Quite frankly, it's uh, it's the rare life that doesn't doesn't have this happen uh, more or less often, and it's important that when we get rattled, that we know how to help ourselves. Yeah. That we need to have skills to start under suboptimal conditions, calming, soothe, self-soothing strategies. Uh, for a meditator, that means creating ease in this ease. Yeah. It means I can go to a place, I am unsatisfied, uh, troubled, I am stressed, I am uncomfortable in, and I can learn to create some form of ease, some form of abiding place, some form of landing platform. Maybe this is as gentle as doing your yoga exercises, going to the limit of a movement and then breathing into the space where it kind of tightens up and you create some ease where there wasn't ease. If your mind is already easeful, then it means you know how to make it even more easeful, even more stable, even more calm, even more translucent. Don't wait for the crisis. But this first strategy of um, calming soothing, creating ease is an essential tool in making the mind more still. Yeah. All samatha practice and samatha practice is more important than we sometimes let on as teachers. All samatha practice begins with creating ease. Not because conditions are perfect or because I have successfully manipulated my life in such controlled circumstances that I have a say over every last little event. That's not how it works. It seems to work the other way around, that I know how to bring ease to this mind even if challenged, even if things are going wrong, even if I'm in discomfort. That's a very, very useful skill. If conditions are good, then this skill will help you to actually very quickly deepen into stillness. You know, you lose less time. There's a couple of things that help with that. One of them is letting go. Yeah. If you're really interested in samadhi, this uh, metta, powerful, and letting go. If you want to avoid samadhi, keep hating and never let go of anything. This is very simple, isn't it? It's very simple. And it is no secret that if you have access to calm, then you will probably also will have access to, still, uh, to, to the heart that is caring, the heart that is friendly. Yeah? You can attune to this. The other one is letting go. There's so many things that we just have to let go. Yeah? Even if you don't believe in letting go, it's just uneconomical. Yeah? And it's crucial that we practice that skill yeah 
this one is gone. Yeah, this one is out of the door. This ship has sailed. Yeah. Um, let me focus on what's coming. Let me focus on what's here instead of doing uh, big post-mortems. Yeah. It's good to know sometimes what went wrong, but then enough. We have learned our lesson. We move on with this lesson. So in meditation practice, that is the bit that has to come first. Before you do anything ambitious, you need to be able to take your mind from wherever it is and modulate its intensity, modulate its dissipation, modulate its complexity, modulate its speed. It's not that this is the best, or it's not that this is the only, or it's not. It's just without this skill, all of the other skills, all of the other things meditation practice can do is a lot less effective. Yeah. This is a beautiful image of how Arjun Cha uh, asks the kind of perennial question, how much samatha you need to make effective vipassana? This is, you know, samatha... It's like making a, a candle, you know, you kind of dip the wick into wax and then you dip it in water, you dry it, you dip it in wax, water, dry. And the candle gets kind of big, increasingly fat, and really solid kind of candle, but there's no light, yeah. It's really strong. Uh, Vipassana without samatha is like kind of lighting a match, you know. It's great, you start to see something, and then you burn your fingers and then it gets dark again. <laughs> So you have these kind of topical glimpses and then burnt fingers and then dark again. So the obvious thing is to bring them together in some ways so that your light has enough nourishment to keep glowing. For didactic reason, it is necessary that we learn this self-soothing, self-stilling, tranquilizing in our everyday lives. This will be much of your practice at home. I would recommend you spend half of your time available to do sitting practice for nothing else but that. Half of your time that you still your mind. To create the conditions that this mind is more bright and is capable of understanding more deeply. To cultivate that stillness is also going to instill you with confidence. It's going to uh, lower your blood pressure. It's uh, going to minimize your nocturnal cortisol releases. Uh, it's you know it's going to do all kinds of good things uh, that the Buddha didn't explicitly state in the Pali Canon, but that we <laughs> now know are are happening. Yeah, when we learn to self-soothe and create stability, calm, and ease, a unification of mind. The second big task of mind cultivation is. What I think I spoke of on one of the earlier evening, it's about getting a perspective away from the content on my of my experience more onto the nature of the experiencer. Yeah. So a shift away from preoccupation with content of experience to how the experiencer is constituting itself. That means this identification, to be very blunt, yeah. There is something, and this is not mine. I am not this. I have some relationship to it. I may have even some responsibility to steward this, but it's it's not me. I am not it. It's not mine. Um, 
And I learn to disidentify. This is a very, very crucial step. This is the famous step back. Obviously, this works a lot better if some calm is already in place and some perspective that comes from this disidentification is immediate. Yeah? Relaxation, acknowledgement of resources, acknowledgement of not being imprisoned, not being held at gunpoint of mental content, but actually, wow, yeah, this has arisen. It feels somehow convincing. Uh, I might be easily hypnotized by it, but lo and behold, actually, right now I'm not hypnotized. I just kind of, I'm holding the experience rather than the experience holding me. Yeah. There's a very subtle difference there. It's an acknowledgement, yes, this experience takes place. And this is very different from here, here I go again. Yeah. It's a very different perspective. Potentially same content, but different perspective. Now this perspective is crucial. As long as we are trying to fix the mind by getting it to have the right experiences, experience it in the right states, have the right objects come in and, st and have the wrong ones stay out, uh, we will not gain a big perspective. So this, this, this identification is crucial. For many people, this, this identification is probably what they understand meditation to be. It's going to some safe place where I can't be overwhelmed anymore by my experience. Yeah. This is a very uh, understandable uh, longing and uh, it's in fact crucial to be able to stay out of things. Learning to stay out of certain dynamics is the first prerequisite to properly work with these dynamics. As long as I don't have the guarantee that I actually can stay out of something, I cannot really be trusted to be working with this successfully because it might rope me in at any moment. You know? So this disidentification is a crucial stage in meditation. The next stage is pretty much the opposite of this identification. You know, once we have learned to stay, to stay out, once we have learned to gain perspective, to step back, to move away, we need to kind of crawl back in. Yeah. With loins girded, uh, respectful, negotiated, soberly kind of crawl back in and say, is it really what I thought it was? Is it really as, as it looks it is? What else is going on in there? How is it that this always comes back? You know, this path is a very personal path. It operates in terms of your history, your psychological biography, the particularity of your virtues and hang-ups, your family dynamics, you know, your relationship patterns, your contact patterns, your, you know, your attachment theory story and so forth. Yeah, you, can, you can really get personal in there. So this third step has something to do. You have to understand the particularity of your story. Not rehearse it, not believe it, not rationalize it, not perpetuate it, but understand it. Yeah? You need to do the lit crit of your story. Okay? <laughs> you need to do the close reading of your story. You need to get into the narratology of your. Yeah? Not believe the story, not follow the story, not embellish it, but actually see how does it work. How come, under what circumstances, makes sense how I operate? Yeah. How did the situation look 
that has made me do what I do. Now this is obviously, uh, this is tricky terrain. It is very likely that you will need to do a lot of shuttling, yeah? Going in, being pulled in, clambering out again, finding distance, looking at it again, recognizing where you've fallen in, trying to avoid getting a little closer without falling into this one. And gradually you will become familiar with that landscape, with that territory. That's where much purification, that's where much healing takes place, that's where obviously the stillness helps, the disidentification skill helps. Uh, that's where you will understand what holds your self-construct in place. The fourth of the stages is again, it's kind of like going out and you're understanding what you have understood in that third dimension, in very personal terms, you begin to understand that in universal terms. Yeah. You stop re recognizing just your story. You begin to recognize the patterns that have made up your story in other people. Or you begin to, rec to relate to those patterns in impersonal terms. <coughs> you begin to recognize these patterns and the bigger perspective on things in ways that are applicable to other people. That's quite a powerful stage when you actually have learned through your story and you don't need to only recognize the bits that somehow have happened in you, but you recognize fear, you recognize freedom, you recognize uh, what leads to a development and what leads away from development. You recognize conditions that are salubrious to growth and detrimental to growth. You begin to see that in bigger ways. You kind of lift your gaze from your own navel, you know, and your meditation becomes uh, bigger. Yeah. So I think these four stages should be part of all mind cultivation. Uh, if you lose one of these stages, you're likely to, to miss out bits and pieces. Obviously, there's a little pathology that goes to all of the four stages. Let me just finish with this pathology. The pathology of the first stage, it's never going to be quiet enough. You, know? you can never be quiet. You, know, you really need more calm. You know, before you can do anything, any further exercises, you just need to get it more calm. Yeah? So the, the deficiency mind that we oper often operate by applied to spiritual and meditative practice is exactly as disastrous as the deficiency mind is in anywhere else. Uh, you know, it can creep into your shopping habits or it could creep in your child rearing assessments or it can also creep into meditators' minds. So that pathology of this, I can't do anything else, I'm so much in the red, I really need to get more calm. The pathology in number two dimension is it's never safe enough, you know. You need more control. You need to get further out. You know, it's still too unpeaceful. You know, you still feel there's too much movement there. You know, you want to get further and further and further out, you know. And the further out you go, the more peaceful it is, but also the more remote. And you don't actually solve anything out there because to solve anything, you actually need to be up close. But it does feel comfortable out there. So... The pathology of that second dimension is we don't actually want to engage. We don't want to meet. You can only transcend what you have arrived at. You can't transcend from a distance. It's very simple. It's psychologically not healthy and it's spiritually a catastrophe to try to transcend things that you haven't arrived at. The pathology of the third dimension is the drama. You know, 
so many more emotions to be felt through, so many more inner children to be released, so many more <laughs> traumas to be undone and, you know, scars to be fixed. So, so you need to kind of, it's endless. So the personal, the personality dimension there becomes too big, and you just, you you buy into the enactment pattern. Yeah. Of the fourth one, I don't see many pathologies. Maybe a too early attempt to stay there and kind of understand things from a too abstract way that you actually haven't first-hand experience. But it's the first three pathologies. So ponder a little bit. It'd be nice if your meditation practice that not just here but also that you take away that this in some way holds some of these four dimensions that you try to develop the skills to still to train your mind to disidentify to have the humility and the courage to crawl back in and understand what entices you what keeps troubling you what keeps confusing you and that you try to understand from impersonal, in impersonal terms, what has happened to you personally. Yeah, good, let me end here. I wish you well. So in the last few days of a retreat, people, or I can certainly say I, know that my mind starts to plan the next retreat. So I start to think, okay, when can I go on retreat and with which teacher, rather than just using the time that I've still got to plan, you know, the next really long retreat, I will go off to Burma or whatever. And this is really lovely. I mean, it, it really shows how inspired we are and that there is really so much good intention um, going on. It's a really wholesome energy, actually. But what we could perhaps forget in this pattern is that really this is not just about going on retreats, but this practice has the potential to really, you know, include our whole life, our entire life. And I think it's really helpful if we can start to dissolve this distinction between a retreat as a practice and just the rest of our life. So, you know, not to have this very strong asymmetry between this is the real practice when I'm sitting in on my cushion and doing this kind of intense practice. And then somehow I have the rest of the life that I just have to somehow get over it and so that I can come back on retreat. Um, I think it's really a very limited understanding of practice. And we can really start to see over time that practice is so much more than just um, you know, sitting here, doing this kind of formal practice. Of course, there is a systematic practice, as Akinchano mentioned, the stilling of the mind. That's really, really important, but it's not the only thing. And if we just stay in this concept of, okay, this is a real practice, we just miss out so many other opportunities to train and cultivate our heart and mind. And uh, what I really find over the years is that practice is multidimensional. It's not just one-dimensional. 
You know, I used to have a really limited understanding and having these, you know, concepts about progress in meditation, how it should unfold, and then measuring myself, where am I, and so. And I just started to understand that really, while maybe I'm staring at this dimension, maybe there is something really important going on over there. And there is some development happening that I'm not noticing. And that is really, really important. So we might at times really emphasize the development of, you know, stilling the mind, um, collecting the mind, uh, doing this really microscopic investigation of our experience. And at other times, maybe our practice is just to bring our kids to school or to take care of someone in our family. Maybe it's our practice. Um, to forgive someone who has uh, hurt us. Maybe it's our practice to do some political action. Maybe it's our practice, um, I don't know, the way we buy things. Uh, just everything can be brought on our path. So I just find it really broadening if we can not just have a very narrow understanding what the practice is, but really see that it's more than just this meditation. It's how we live our life. And, you know, I remember when I asked a Tibetan teacher, I was frustrated that I cannot go on long retreats because I was yeah, still taking care of someone in my family. So, yeah, these are just life situations and we all have them. We, we just have to deal with our life. And he just said, yeah, so your job is to develop your paramitas. So developing generosity, developing patience, there it is. This is the practice. Whatever life is throwing at us, this is our practice. It's not, now I have to get this away that I can go back to my practice. This is where the practice happens. In the moment when someone, you know, yells at you, in the moment where your car breaks down, in the moment where things in the world are really difficult, these are the moments where something can actually grow. And what I find a really helpful question is to ask myself, what can I cultivate right now? What quality? Maybe it's not collectedness right now. Maybe I'm just cultivating patience. Very often that's the answer. Maybe I'm cultivating forgiveness. Maybe I'm cultivating generosity or mudita, whatever, you know, just asking myself in whatever situation that I find myself, how could I make the best use of this situation, whatever the situation is. And so we realize it's really the way we frame ev any situation that it can become Dharma practice. So, um, that is just from my side. I, I think that can really help us to, to broaden our understanding and really to see that there is always a possibility of cultivating the mind intentionally rather than just cultivating the old patterns. I mean, as you know, if we are not mindful, if we are not aware, then we are still going to cultivate something, but maybe not so good, not so good patterns. So if we, if we really bring the mindfulness that we have developed here to all those dark moments, we can 
make something very, very precious out of them. So I just wanted to thank you for being here and also I wish you well. May you be at peace. I mean, I hope that you've <clears throat> really got the kind of message from us that, you know, that this is really a path of waking up, you know, and there's many elements involved in waking up, aren't there? When the Buddha talks about the sort of development of, of understanding or the deepening of understanding, you know, he goes through these different steps, you know, and the, the first of them is to listen to the teaching, you know, uh, the second of them is, is to, to actually have an intellectual agreement with it. You know, this is very important, you know. It, it's, it's where we don't accept things on the basis of ideology. And, you know, personally, I, <clears throat> I don't have really extensive patience with this sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, this false division that is often made between learning and practicing, you know. Uh, that's the intellectual stuff, you know, and then I'll go to my cushion and do the real thing. You know, this is a very, very kind of, I think quite a Western separation. So learning, having an intellectual agreement, we ask you to examine what you hear, you know. Does it ring true in my own experience? Do I have an agreement with it? Because, you know, unless we do that examination, we're not going to take it forward, are we? We're just going to live in the state, well, maybe, you know, you know, if we sat up here and said, you know, well, really, everything's permanent, you know, you'd probably look at us. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how I'm going to take that one forward, you know. Um, so to have an intellectual agreement, to explore what you agree with and, and hear experientially, you know, how do I really, really know this, really know this in my body, in my life? Um, and one that I would add on to it is another one. It's about embodiment. You know, how much do we live aligned with our learning and our understanding and our values and what we care about? And this is where, you know, we expand what, we, what we're embarked on. You know, this is a, this, uh, awakening project. It's not a very good way of saying it, but how, how we approach this, you know. I, I have a lot of people who talk to me about their practice. I don't have so many people talk to me about their path. And I, I find that curious, you know, how, how you know, practice is, is something we apply, we do on a cushion, we do on our walking path, uh, whereas, you know, the, the, the Buddhist uh, portrayal of waking up is of course much bigger than this it, it's this is actually about a path that we're cultivating that in which nothing is left out exactly as Yuka said you know taking the kids to school in a careful way is just as important actually as having four breaths in a row it's hard for us to get our heads around that you know but it is a truth and a path is always one of cultivation isn't it and I think for that, that cultivation to, to really be something alive and dynamic and, and inspired, we actually really need to look for our sources of nourishment. You know, we need to look for our sources of nourishment. You know? uh, otherwise, we can end up with a daily practice that feels like a task. We can feel satisfied if we tick that box, feel guilty if we don't. You know? But we haven't necessarily, because we're trying to maintain something, 
rather than trying to live something and grow something. And you know, certainly in my own experience, this requires a great deal of nourishment. If there's going to be inspiration, it's because we're nourished. You know? And fortunately, you know, we do live in a time and an age where that nourishment is not always so far away from us. I mean, certainly good friends, sanghas, community, this, this can be so important, you know, so deeply important, good friendships. Good friendships don't have to be Buddhist, by the way. Good friendships are people who encourage us and inspire us and support us and we're learning from and deepening together with. Um, but there's many other forms of nourishment too, you know, learning. I, I, I personally love to learn. You know, this is something, it's a, it's a passion, you know, it enlivens me. It feels, it, it brings a certain vitality, you know, that I'm not plateauing somewhere, you know. So that there are, and, and I just name a few resources, you know. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the Satipatthana here. Please read it. <laughs> Please reflect on it. You know, this is about our life. This is the classroom of our life. Let's value this mind that we have to, to learn and to investigate and to understand. You know, let's not imagine that meditative practice requires our mind it requires us to leave our mind outside with our shoes, you know. This is an investigation, you know. Please employ your mind. Read it. Reflect on it. How, how do you read this? How do you, how do you understand this, you know? There's a couple of wonderful online resources, Suta Central, which I love. Suta Central. We've put these on the board, you know. You can go there. You can read this. Um, access to Insight. Go there. Read this, you know. Dharma seed, you know. I mean, you you can you know you can listen to the Dharma every day. I mean, you might find yourself over listening, but you can listen to the Dharma every day. You know, um, we have a, a Kinshinu are part of and I are part of a, a new venture called Bodhi College, where we're actually trying to make available resources for people to to actually learn really from some of the perspectives we hope they were communicating from the early teachings and, and how they really lived and applied today. You know, this is our kind of mission in Bodhi College. It's like the old early teachings were not something that is a sort of historical memory. These actually have some meaning for how we live and how we act. So if you go on the Bodhi College website, there's a very good reading list on that. Um, you know, we're kind of a new new venture you know we're not very organized <laughs> we're not very supported you know but I think some of the things that are happening there are quite quite wonderful you know we have some extended learning courses um, and please you know I, I know Europe looks very far away from here but you know it's really not <laughs> it's really not so you might want to look on there, but to look for what inspires you. Look at what gets some juices flowing, you know. Um, and, then, and then to expand this vision into path. And I, I think Yuka's pointed this out so clearly, you know, this question of cultivation. You know, we live in difficult times, and perhaps we could say that people have always lived in difficult times. But I know the times we're living in now are very, very challenging for many people, bringing up grief and despair and helplessness. Not for all, but for some this is true. 
and and it's very easy to get drawn into that that vortex, you know. And I think there's something here where cultivation is particularly important to save us from sinking. And, and there's much that cultivates here that actually really has a, a, some things we can embody. You know, we can embody compassion. We can embody receptivity. We can embody listening. We can, we can embody the willingness to hear. What somebody might say is completely different than, than we think, but we can hear, we can be present, we can receive, we need to keep finding these, these refuges within ourselves. You know, I, I go to Italy every year to teach, to Rome, and I, the place where I teach and stay is just around the corner from the Vatican. And I go out at night, you know, and as many of you know, Italy is the, the entry point for many people who are really fleeing war and, and loss and danger and threat and famine and, you know, the catastrophes that are the lives of so many today. And Italy is really the entry point. And you go around St. Peter's at night, you know, and it's a total carpet of people, you know, who go there to, to sleep, you know. Uh, people who have nothing, you know, who families, old people, you know, children on their own, you know. It, it's a carpet. It's a carpet of human suffering, you know. And, and you know, sleeping outside, you know, there's, there's nothing there. And, and it's amazing how, Saint, you know, in St. Peter's during the day, you know, it's filled with tourists and pilgrims, and everybody goes home at five o'clock because the Vatican closes. And then the Vatican closes, here comes this army of the dispossessed, you know, and the suffering. And, and you know what else comes? You know, all of these countless people who are coming, they're offering food, you know, they're offering clothing, they're offering uh, water, they're offering their presence, they're offering their care, you know. And there's something, uh, I mean, it's such few little drops in this ocean of misery. But to see how to move from, you know, good intention to embodied intention is really something, you know, to see how we can do that. You know, we don't, we don't measure the outcomes of those many small acts of generosity, those many small acts of care, those many small acts of actually seeing another person, you know, of actually seeing their how they are, and you know that simple question of what can I do to help? What can I do to help? It, it's not always grand. We don't always have the resources to be grand, but we have all the resources for the small acts of listening and compassion and care. And quite frankly, we don't have to wait for the opportunities of that for that. So this question of embodiment, you know, doesn't wait for the, or is, is not waiting for the big dramatic moments. It's, it's acting for, you know, how we touch the world. How we actually touch the world. And this is crucial in this, in this path of waking up, that we, we don't lose sight of our relatedness, you know, that anything another person experiences, this could be us, you know. Any mind state, any mood, any plight another person experiences, this too could be us, you know. And what does this actually ask for, you know? What can actually be helpful here? And there's something about, you know, that this is the stuff that helps us to sleep more easily at night. 
you know, that there's actually, uh, we, we have a commitment to ending dissonance in our life, that we live what we care about, you know. We actually live what we care about in how we touch the world around us. And it does make a difference. There's a, a wonderful uh, quote from the Greek, Sextus Empiricus. Mm. He says, The beauty and mystery of this world only emerges through affection, attention, interest, and compassion. See this world by attending to its colors, its details, and above all, its irony. There's something here, isn't there, about the sort of flavor of, of mindfulness, about how we attend to this world in its details with affection, attention, interest, and compassion. Yeah? It's almost like that's, that's, that will take us a, lo- a long way. That will take us a long way on the, this path of, of waking up, you know, which doesn't really, we don't think about an ending. In line with this kind of ongoing investigation, I really encourage you, you know, to actually don't, don't uh, keep it focused, you know. It's too big an idea to think, well, I'll just sit, you know, I'll just sit, see what's going on, you know, or uh, keep it focused. You know, you, you could take something, say, from the seven limbs of awakening that we talked about last night or from the Brahma Viharas, you know, stay with an intention for a period of time because this is how it matures and deepens and ripens, rather than having, you know, 500 possible intentions for entering our day, you know. Stay with one and grow it. Really grow it, you know. This does take time. This does take time. You know, as I mentioned in one of the groups, you know, my intention in this year so far, I often have a sort of overriding intention that I use as an investigation, is to, is to have... Nobody in my life that I'm indifferent towards. You know, and I, I find this a really, this is really startling, you know, in terms of meta. You know, I get on the train, I pass the people on the street, you know, uh, the, the person at the cash register in the supermarket, you know, the person at the gas station, so many people, the people in the hotels, you know, who look after us, you know, the restaurants. Who, uh, it's so easy to see people by their functions, isn't it? And as if they're not somehow really worthy of the attention we would give to someone we love or someone we struggle with, you know. And I found this quite a startling practice, you know. Suddenly I, I seem to live in a much friendlier world. This is not, by the way, about, again, it's not about inflicting meta on people, you know. <laughs> you know, there are those who will not want meta inflicted upon them, you know, and we respect that. You know, it's not about, you know, you're going to get my meta, whether you like it or not. You know, here it comes, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's about seeing, it's about noticing, it's about what happens when in those moments we offer a, a kind of a, a, a glance of tenderness and respect where our gaze falls, you know. Uh, where, whether we offer an acknowledgement or whether we offer a smile, you know, I... I have so many underground journeys in London now where I feel like I'm surrounded by friends. You know, we have conversations. It's very un-PC un in London. You, know, you don't talk to anybody on the underground. 
you don't look at anybody, you don't, you know, it's very grim, you know, it's, it's very grim. So, but it's amazing, isn't it, how, you know, how we respond when somebody sees us? When, when somebody's gaze falls upon us with tenderness and respect? It's a good moment, isn't it? It's a good moment. You know? So to take something as an intention that's a sort of ongoing exploration, it can be almost anything. You know, It can be virya, our willingness to show up. It can be appreciative joy. It can be impermanence. It can be dissociation, trackingness. But really, really beginning to... to I, I find it very helpful to have a, some substantial focus in my explorations in rather than just a sort of vague, I'm just going to look at what's going on. I'm going to cultivate something. And this makes a difference. I want to, uh, first of all, thank my colleagues up here. We have had really a good time together. I want to certainly thank the staff here at IMS, you know, the ones we see and the ones we don't see. You know, yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like Rodney said to us this morning, you know, the folks in the front office get lots of love. You know, the folks in facilities, you know, they're, they're kind of back there making sure everything works, you know. This is really crucial, you know, that the water runs, you know, and, and all of that stuff, important stuff, you know. It, our, fi- really our fire alarms don't keep us awake at night as yes, they have been. Yeah, as has happened to both of us this week. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, the staff here are so dedicated. They yeah. are so dedicated. Yeah. They are so lovely, yeah. you know. I mean, we get to see them and talk to them, but truly, this is, they are profoundly generous yeah. and, and we love them to bits. And just to acknowledge this is what really allows us to be here as we are here. Also, I really want to thank all of you for your practice. This has been a wonderful week. And I really, really appreciate your sincerity and you know, your commitment and your questions and your listening and all of those things that make how we make a retreat together. Yeah? How we make a retreat together. And each and every one of you has really been such a big part of that. And I think we've all done a really good job. <laughs> all done a really good job. So, really, thank you for that and that you, you do travel safely and that you land softly and Maybe we just take a moment quietly together. Yeah, and that you'll come back when the time is ripe and the possibilities make it uh, feasible. Yeah. Again, just this a little moment of, of pause together, a little moment of stillness together again, with, with a deep sense of appreciation for all of those around you, those who've taken care of. Us and for yourself, for your own efforts, your sincerity, your commitment in the lovely times and the difficult moments too, your willingness to show up. And, and the real wish that whatever benefits come from our practice really do serve well and serve in a caring way those that we love, those who are close to us, those that we struggle with, and of course the many, many beings in this world that we, we don't know and yet still live together with. 
May all beings be safe and well. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings abide in ease and in kindness. So you have now some freedom. (laughs) There is no further schedule. This is it. You get a chance to check out whether the stories you have about everyone else are true. (laughs) (laughs) Or whether you were quite mistaken in it. Take it gentle when you begin to speak, you know, this is the moment to shift from noble silence to noble speech, maybe some gentle and light conversation before you get into the meaty bits. Um, uh, Be kind to yourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.